Hello and welcome to the podcast, A Little Legal, A Lot Interesting, brought to you by Brown Rudnick. Uh, yes, we're a law firm, but our aim is to deliver up something a little different. While in each episode we'll be touching on topics in or around the law and its practice, we'll do so while speaking to interesting people who will have their own unique perspectives, and if we're lucky, may also have a tale or two to tell. So welcome everyone to the podcast, which today is on the topic of litigation finance, its evolution, its lockdown experience, and the perennial question to regulate or not to regulate, made ever more current by recent developments in Australia. To discuss these issues, I'm very grateful to be joined by two guests from the litigation finance industry, Stephen Friel, CEO of Woodsford Litigation Funding, and Matthew Denny, Investment Manager and Head of Origination EMEA for LCM Finance. Before joining Woodsford in 2015, Stephen Friel was a disputes partner of mine here in the London office of Brown Rudnick. Prior to joining Brown Rudnick, Stephen was a partner in the London office of DAC Beechcroft and also practiced from the London and New York offices of Debevoise and Plimpton. Matthew is a qualified solicitor and has also spent his entire career in the litigation and arbitration world. Prior to joining LCM in August 2018, Matthew set up Chancery Capital with Nick Rolls-Davis in May 2017. Before that, he was a partner of the litigation-only firm of Enyo Law and was also a director of Navigant, a global disputes consultancy. A big welcome to Matthew and Stephen to the podcast. Good morning and thank you. Hi, Christian. Hi, Matthew. So again, both welcome and thank you. Before we got into the meat of it, I just always think it's quite neat, given the current situation, just to get a brief glimpse into into your respective lives and your new normal. So perhaps, Stephen, I'll ask you, you know, where are you and and how are things treating you presently? Well, Christian, I hope the new normal is a temporary normal. Um, Running a business and running a homeschool from my kitchen table or from a desk in my bedroom has its ups and its downs. Uh, I'm enjoying some of it, but not all of it. Um, and I'll be looking forward to a return to normality. And Matthew, how are things treating you? Um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to argue with anything that Stephen just said. I think um, uh, I think normality in certain ways is going to be welcome. Um, the ability to uh, see people face to face, to get back into the um, lifestyle of, of London life and um, all of that brings is going to be welcomed, but I do think there will be a, a changing working structures and environments for many people within the law, whether that's funding or 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 law generally. Um, uh, working from home, working remotely is working. It's effective. Um, I agree that nothing beats FaceTime, but um, it's definitely business as normal. But then I'm now relatively fortunate in that my daughter has gone back to school. So I have the peace and quiet, um, which allows me to do what I need to do. So I think that segues us neatly into the first question I had for you both. Litigation funding, lockdown, what's the impact of, of that being? Matt, perhaps do you take that first? Um, I'll be honest, it, it's it's made no difference at all. Um, I mean, I'd say almost it's been um, more effective. People are around, I'm not traveling. Um, the conference circuit has been, um, well, is no more uh, at the moment. and people are around, I'm around, things are getting done. I mean, um, I was told the other day that I've got to keep some form of tag on my um, uh, my ankle so that I can't leave the house even when normality comes back because things are being <laughs> done in a far more effective style because I'm not traveling. So I think in some respects, it's been um, uh, an effective uh, working environment within 
uh, lockdown. Having said that, I do believe that nothing beats um, FaceTime with individuals. Um, but, you know, I think the other point to make is everybody's in the same boat. So the video calls, the, um, the ability to get hold of people, everyone's in the same boat. When things do go back to normal, um, there will be that, that difference in that some people will be traveling again, some people will be in the office, some people won't be. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But from a litigation funding point of view, um, people around, uh, people are getting um, uh, deals done. And I also think the other aspect of the current um, epidemic and um, potential economic, uh, I'm not going to say crisis because it's a little different to the um, position in uh, 2008, 2009, is that um, businesses are looking at cash flow because that is a, a, an obvious um, issue that is coming out of this. And whether that's bringing money in through litigation arbitration or it's looking to um, mitigate some of their um, overheads and their costs, I think more people are looking at litigation funding and I'm certainly seeing more law firms um, think about funding in ways to do their own business development. So I think it, it's been, um, I'm not going to say beneficial, that's, that's, that's too um, making a positive out of a, out of a crisis, but um, I think people have taken stock of their positions over the last few months. And Stephen, what's your, been your experience from the Woodford's perspective? Market up, market down, just as busy? How, how are things? Yeah, just, just like um, Matthew mentioned, I think there are two ways of looking at uh, how the lockdown affects a business like ours. The first is in respect of business operations. Um, and actually, I was surprised how seamlessly our business moved on to an entirely remote way of doing business. And perhaps in some ways, that's not surprising, given that um, the people who work in our business are generally high-caliber, self-motivated professionals who are used to a certain amount of remote working in any event. And the lawyers and other professionals that we deal with were equally capable of seamlessly moving on to a remote way of working. And so that's been fairly seamless. Uh, and indeed, um, I think there have been some upsides of this new way of working and this temporary uh, situation we find ourselves in. Um, two examples would be, uh, I think that the crisis, this, this absence from the office has forced us to be um, to look at more alternative ways of communicating with each other, um, notwithstanding that we've had video conferencing and various other software um, ways of communicating. We haven't really properly used them to their full effect, and that has all changed. Um, uh, it is now the norm among my colleagues and among the lawyers and others that we do business with, that rather than spending time faffing around trying to get um, meetings set up, we just click a link and there, there's a, a, a Zoom conversation right there or a Microsoft Teams conversation right there. And also I think that keeping in touch has been improved. Um, Woodsford is a, a global business. I have colleagues in eight uh, cities around the world um, and I've found that with my colleagues outside of London, um, ironically, I've been more in touch with them over this period than before, and it's, it's really involved those relationships. And the second way I think of looking at how lockdown has affected our business is, is to look at deal flow. Um, my guess when we were forced into lockdown um, has, I think, proven to be correct, which was there was a one, possibly two-month dip in deal activity uh, as everyone moved on to uh, remote working and there was a certain amount of 
um, uh, disruption involved in that um, uh, at every stage in the way, uh, particularly from the claimants and the lawyers that we do business with. They were trying to work out their new normal. Uh, but that has, as I expected, been followed quite quickly by a significant uptick in the flow. Uh, one of the unfortunate realities of the economic recession that we are slipping into on a global basis is that there is going to be an increase in financial distress and an increase in litigation and arbitration and other forms of dispute resolution. And when you put those two things together, that is a problem that our businesses as litigation funders are, are here to solve. Um, and we are finding that Whereas at the last great financial crisis in 2008, when litigation funding was in its infancy, there wasn't necessarily a significant uptick in deal flow for litigation funders who were just getting on their feet. 10, 12 years on, we are now established businesses with high quality capital, high quality professionals, and very effective processes for getting through the funding process. Um, and so, I would expect that uh, this year, next year, and the year thereafter will be a time of significant activity in litigation funding. So my next question feeds on something that both of you have mentioned in terms of the approach uh, to litigation funding and what you're seeing now is the, the current model. Now, obviously, we've seen the traditional single case funding, the development of portfolios, uh, and then more asset finance. And as Matt was mentioning, getting money into a business. Are we likely to see any kind of new innovations coming? Or have we kind of reached the pinnacle of, of the different models that litigation finance may be able to field? Uh, Stephen, perhaps ask you first. Sure. Well, I, I take a very simplistic view on this. Um, uh, Woodsford has two great assets. We have a deep pool of high quality capital and we have a deep talent pool of professionals who understand litigation and arbitration. And our business model is to put those two assets together to create returns for our business and to create solutions for the people that we do business with. Um, we have never been hidebound by the way in which we deploy our capital and our understanding of litigation and arbitration into a single model. Uh, we've always been very open to different ways in which we can support law firms and their clients in the litigation and arbitration process. So I've never seen there being a single model of litigation funding. I've always seen that there are many ways in which we can deploy our capital and our professionalism, and that continues to be the case. And Matt, from your perspective? Um, well, I, I agree wholeheartedly. There's there's no single model. I mean, I think we are a far cry from the days of um, three times 30% standard terms, take them or leave them. Um, I think the market has evolved, uh, not dramatically, but it has evolved over the last few years. There's still a lot to be done, both in terms of um, evolving further, but also illustrating and educating um, clients, lawyers, uh, the market about the evolution so far. I think some people, an awful lot of people are still um, focused on the traditional single case model and don't fully understand where the market is and where it can get to. I mean, I, again, I, I take a relatively simplistic view. I mean, effectively, what litigation funding is, is just a form of asset finance. It just happens to be against contingent asset. 
if you're dealing with a single case, the pricing is um, high because the risk is high. If you're able to cross collateralize and um, bring the risk down, then the pricing becomes lower. Uh, you then evolve from that into, well, if the book of cases you're dealing with is sufficient in terms of value um, and there's equity between what is needed to run the claims and the amount that we as a fund are prepared to invest, then there's monetization or there's funding defense cases or there's um, all types of uh, solutions you can come up with a corporate. Um, I mean, just in the last year, I mean, we, we've monetized the law firm against the DBA. Um, we've done a um, portfolio for a corporate with over 30 cases, which included debt recovery. Um, I'm currently looking at um, facilities for law firms, and we've just done a deal with a um, law firm putting cash in against their um, uh, their WIC and, WIP and their future invoices. There is so much you can do, and I think the biggest challenge going forward is, um, as I said, educating and illustrating just what you can do um, even now, let alone the evolution going forward in the next few years. But I think for for us, for me, the big challenge is illustrating what you can do to the lawyers from a corporate point of view so they can pass that on to their corporate clients because, as I said earlier, liquidity is going to be a major challenge for a lot of businesses. And not enough businesses think of litigation, arbitration, general disputes as an asset class and an asset that they could do something with. And just thinking a little bit differently, um, I think could bring some interesting um, consequences to the business. Now, I'm not saying you can do that with every case, with every opportunity, but it's it's a question of um, changing the way people think. One hot topic is the issue of class actions. And that does feed into the regulatory questions I'll ask you in a moment. But but Stephen, just from a, a class actions perspective, there are obviously a number of options in English law, the GLOs, representative actions, potential CAT actions. From your experience thus far, do you think they're adequate for what we need to achieve? Or is a more bespoke sort of class action mechanism something that we're crying out for in England? Well, Christian, this year marks the 21st anniversary of the reforms to our civil procedures heralded by the Wolf Reforms. Um, it seems very clear to me uh, that we have failed in the task given to us by the Wolf Reforms to properly implement collective redress in the UK legal landscape. Um, back in the late 90s, Lord Wolf identified a number of problems that stood in the way of collective redress or efficient mechanisms for collective redress. Uh, one of those has been solved. That problem was the lack of third-party funding or alternative funding arrangements for group and class actions. Uh, and that has been solved. There is now a very vibrant community industry of legal litigation funders in London. Um, and we have significant capital and professionalism to put to work for the benefit of, of uh, claimants in collective redress. But the second of the significant problems has not been properly addressed, which is the clumsy procedural mechanisms, uh, both in terms of court rules and substantive legal provisions to make collective redress workable. Uh, and we still have not reached uh, a proper position on that. The two areas in which we have a semblance of uh, proper 
collective redress. The first is in the competition space, um, in the CAT regime that came in a few years ago. We have the first and only opt-out regime for uh, litigation in this country. Uh, Woodsford is in the vanguard of uh, the funders uh, and lawyers supporting these developments. Uh, we are funding the Justin Gutman case, uh, which relates to overcharging on the UK national rail network. Uh, that's a standalone action. Uh, we are also funding a follow-on action, uh, uh, the Mark McLaren case relating to the roll-on, roll-off shipping cartel. Um, uh, we have a number of other claims that are making their way through our process and we should be launching soon. Uh, and it's clear to me that um, the CAT regime provides a great model for what a good opt-out regime across the board could be, uh, though it's clear there are still some teething difficulties that are being worked through. And we await the decision of the Supreme Court in the MasterCard case, which might iron out some of those kinks. The second area, I think, where we have some semblance of um, uh, an effective process relates to the opt-in group action space in securities litigation. Uh, this isn't class or group litigation as might be thought of in the US or Australia. It still requires all of the claimants to positively opt into the action uh, and for them to have individual retainer agreements with their lawyers and funding agreements with their funders. But nonetheless, on the institutional shareholder side, there is now a, a very effective way of putting these claims together. Uh, and again, Woodsford is in the vanguard of that with, with a, a significant number of these actions um, ongoing. Uh, but we don't have good uh, mechanisms across the board uh, and they are sorely needed. And Matt, what's your experience of uh, class actions and the effectiveness of the mechanisms we currently have? Well, we are currently funding um, an opt-out claim in the CAT. Uh, we've looked at a few over the last year or so. Um, I'm talking purely from uh, a mere point of view or UK. I'll, I'll discuss Australia in a second. But um, I, I think the, the holdup with, with the current regime is purely um, the, the class certification position. And, and the challenge at the moment is that the Visa MasterCard claim is such an enormous case that it's I'm not going to say it's the, well. It's almost the wrong one to test class cert because everyone's hanging um, on this decision. But regardless of what happens on that, there will be others that will get class certification. So in a way, it, it, it's, I'm not going to say floodgates, but we just need class certification to occur and for more people to um, get comfortable with the fact that it can happen and more claims um, of the, of that ilk will be brought. Um, in Australia, it's going the other way. I mean, there's there's um, you know, political issues with um, class actions, um, and you've seen the current position as a fallout from that. But I think here, I mean, the class action regime is a form of corporate governance. It does hold um, businesses to account. Um, we need to have a mechanism that gives rights to individuals, to investors, to shareholders. Um, to get redress when um, when they need it and when they're entitled to it. And obviously the, the question that does flow from the Australian development, the, the need to obtain a, a financial services licence from mid-August, obviously in England we're adopting, and also many other jurisdictions, there's a, a, a more 
generous, if I say, self-regulated model in place right now. Um, how, how do we see that working? And do we think it's really just only a matter of time before formal regulation is imposed uh, here in England and perhaps elsewhere? Uh, Stephen, perhaps I could ask you. Yes, yeah, so I, I suppose there are two questions there. The first is whether the as voluntary self-regulatory regime of the Association of Litigation Funders has worked. And then the second is, you know, what other regulation might there be? The answer to the first question, in my view, is, is absolutely yes. Um, the litigation funding industry in London deploys millions, if not billions of dollars of capital into litigation uh, with almost no recorded incidents of any problem. Uh, indeed, the Association of Litigation Funding, of which Woodsford is a founder member, has a complaint scheme which anyone can use if they have a complaint about their treatment by litigation funders. And in the entire history of ALF, there has never been um, any real uh, trigger for that complaints mechanism, uh, which gives you an indication of, of how satisfactory the process is. Um, what I find interesting is that uh, in the reported cases that might be said to be somewhat problematic from a funder's perspective, the, the English court is usually at pains to point out that the funder in those cases is not a member of ALF. Uh, and I have in mind the Excalibur case and the more recent Murray and Davy case. Neither of those cases involve um, members of the Association of Litigation Funders. Um, and the question for uh, the users of litigation funding, and in particular, uh, the solicitors and other lawyers who um, uh, recommend their clients enter into litigation funded agreements uh, is if they are not, if the funder is not a member of ALF, why not? That needs to be something that needs to be examined. And in particular, if, if the funder uh, is not prepared to comply with the capital adequacy provisions of ALF, some serious questions need to be asked there. As to the second question as to whether more regulation is required, uh, there is no other area of legal or financial services that operates in the same bright glare of hyper-scrutiny uh, that litigation funding does. Um, by definition, the parties to whom we provide funding are legally represented, uh, and we provide our funding in a forum which is scrutinized. Um, uh, there are other stakeholders in the process that are incentivized to review the litigation funding agreements uh, and, and do so, uh, be that the court, uh, the defendants, the professionals, uh, and so on. Um, all of the professionals in my business are members of uh, one or more regulatory body by which they are regulated. I'm a member of the Law Society of England and Wales. My CFO is a chartered accountant. Uh, we are all regulated in that respect. Um, uh, and, and then finally, I think we need to look at what regulation will bring. Um, I, I'm not sure who these regulators are that can wave a magic wand and bring, um, can solve problems, indeed problems that don't currently exist. Uh, if the last global financial crisis tells us anything, it is that time after time, regulators have failed to solve problems and indeed, indeed they often cause problems. Um, so uh, in short, I don't think there is a problem in litigation funding that requires a regulator to solve it. But even if there was a problem, I see no regulator who can effectively be trusted to bring a solution. And Matt, you, your thoughts? Um, 
It's a question that obviously comes up a lot at the moment. Um, I mean, we're a slightly different beast in that we're, we're listed on AIM. I mean, before um, the, the transferee um, team merged into uh, LCM, LCM was listed on the ASX. Um, when the EMEA arm was born, we listed uh, on AIM. So, I mean, we are transparent and not opaque. Um, we're governed by the listing rules. Um, what I am surprised about is that um, I can count on one hand the number of times that clients ask due diligence questions of us. I mean, the ALF, um, I'm not going to say um, doesn't do what it should do because it does, but the reality is um, clients seem to be happy to accept are you a member of the ALF or not, but the, very rarely do they ask where does the money come from? Um, do they ask the questions that I think they potentially should do? Um, I am very happy for further regulation, although I don't disagree with some of Stephen's points there about who's going to do it and how effective they're going to be. But um, I'm certainly not going to shy away from it. And we already um, adhere to um, the relevant rules. So uh, for us, it's a relatively moot point. But I think what I would say is that clients should ask more questions about um, who they're dealing with. And I'm always surprised that they don't ask that more often. Um, I mean, as they ask us, it's quite easy. You know, every, everything's in the public domain. That leads us neatly on to the Australian developments, uh, where the uh, Australian Financial Services Licence is becoming compulsory, I believe, from the 22nd of August of this year. And that's going to require you know, all litigation funders, uh, certainly those involved in class actions, to hold that licence. And so, Matt, just, just asking you first, uh, because obviously you've referenced this a couple of times already, um, I understand LCM is sort of well positioned for that, but what, what does that actually mean in practice? And w will that not stymie competition and, and, and cause more issues than perhaps it might fix? Uh, well, we already have the license. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that we're the only one currently with the license. So um, it's not going to affect us. Um, my understanding, it's not a particularly quick process for licenses to be attained. Um, and I think what it will do will be uh, an indicator as to which funders are um, going to continue to fund uh, in Australia. And it will, I think, weed out those who have seen the odd opportunity in Australia and have, and have gone in um, because that won't be able to happen going forward if you know they don't have the licence. So it, I can see the point of view of potentially stymieing competition for a short period of time, but it will mean that those who are committed to the region will go through the process and get the license. Those who are not won't. Um, so, it, I mean, as I said, we we already um, adhere to the listing rules. We've got the license. There's nothing more that we can do. Um, we are selfishly in a very good position. I do appreciate other people's points of view, though. And I, I think what it will do will be to stop um, businesses, whether they're established funders or not, from dabbling in opportunities in Australia, um, but those people who are committed to the region and go through the license process will still be able to fund as they did before. And Stephen, your thoughts? As to Australia, I think uh, you look first to the problem that the federal government appear to have identified that they seek to solve with regulation. The, the problem that they appear to have identified is that too many claims are being brought against corporate Australia 
with litigation funders earning an outsized return on their investment. Now, I don't agree with that, but let's say for, let's assume for present purposes that there are unmeritorious claims being brought and that funders are earning outsized returns. Well, that's the duty of the court to regulate that, not some independent, not, not, not some civil servant and a regulator. If the claims are unmeritorious, they will lose. Uh, and if the funder is getting outsized returns, that can be addressed in the settlement approval process, which is already uh, a formal part of uh, the Australian class action process. So I, I don't see them a problem. But even if there is a problem, I don't think that uh, the ASICS financial services licensing is the proper route to solve that problem. There is already an inherent solution in court oversight. Um, as to your question as to whether the um, insistence of uh, regulation in this way will have an effect on the competitive landscape, it undoubtedly will. There is no doubt about that. This will have a chilling effect uh, by creating barriers to entry for litigation funders in Australia. Um, the businesses like Woodsford will not will not be in any way affected by this. We are um, uh, significant businesses with deep pools of capital uh, and a deep pool of talent and professionals all over the world, including in Australia. We will easily meet whatever requirements are put in our way by a national regulator. Uh, but the same cannot be said uh, of all litigation funders, uh, and uh, they will find it more difficult to bring claims uh, to fund claims in Australia. Stephen, in relation to the Australian regulators sort of move, do we think this might be the start of a domino effect? Will uh, other jurisdictions perhaps look to Australia and, and think about doing the same thing? Difficult to look into a crystal ball, I appreciate, but given your sort of global view, do you think this is likely to be a, a surge or just a drop in a, a large ocean? No, I, I don't see this as, as leading to a domino effect. I think there are uh, issues that are specific to the Australian litigation and particular class action landscape uh, and also specific to Australian corporate culture that um, have led to these issues. Um, the issue of regulation is over debated in all of the jurisdictions in which litigation funding is uh, active. Uh, the, there are constant discussions in the UK and across the US about the regulation of litigation funding. And time after time, the result of those discussions is, uh, as I've said before, there is no problem to be solved by regulation. And even if there was a problem, it is not best solved by regulation. Uh, so the, the, the question has already been asked many times and it has already been answered with no further regulation required. And Matt, your thoughts? I, I agree. I think the Australian position is um, one for them to deal with in terms of their class action landscape and it being very different to um, most others in the world. So I, I do think it is restricted to that area. Um, I think if it does work very well, um, I think other jurisdictions may look at it, but I don't think there is the um, political push or the um, uh, current landscape that, that is pushing it in the same way that it has done in Australia. Um, so no, I don't think it's going to be a domino effect. And I'd also completely agree that regulation is, is over um, discussed and, and too often brought up. I think, as I said earlier, you know, a lot of this is done with simple questions of due diligence on behalf of the client by the lawyer or the client themselves. Um, you know, I do see 
um, businesses talking to us and other funders who are also talking to high net worth individuals who look to fund their litigation. Um, and you know, there's more issues with that than there is with um, an experienced and longstanding litigation funder. Um, and regulation is not going to deal with that because there's always ways to get around it. Assuming just for the moment, perhaps, that regulation is is coming down the track faster than perhaps maybe originally anticipated, if if at all. And you've both touched on concerns and issues that you see with that. But just to sort of develop the point a little bit further, what are the practical downsides, do we think, to a system of more formal or imposed regulation on the industry? Perhaps, Steve, and I could ask you first. Sure. I, I think the practical downsides fall into two main categories. The first is confusion. We currently have clarity that uh, lawyers who introduce their clients to litigation funders and who advise them on entering into litigation funding arrangements have professional responsibilities in respect thereof. And the courts that oversee the litigations uh, that are pursued by claimants who are funded by litigation funders uh, have uh, oversight responsibilities there, and in particular in a number of areas, including insolvency and class actions, the court have well-known approval processes for litigation funded arrangements. Uh, when a, a, any new regulatory regime enters into the fray, I fear there will be confusion as to who is responsible for what and what is required. Uh, indeed, I understand there to be widespread confusion in Australia right now, as to what exactly is required to be done in the next three months uh, and by whom and which uh, individuals within the regulator will take responsibility for that. Confusion is not a good thing, particularly in the economic times we find ourselves. The second area of downsides to, to impose regulation is really the regulatory burden that is brought by it. I currently do not see is justified by any issues there might be in mitigation funding. I see mitigation funding as a relatively problem-free area, and therefore there does not need to be a heavy regulatory burden, uh, but, but one is, is, is now to be imposed in Australia. And if it were to be further imposed anywhere else, it, I think it would be an unnecessary burden. That said, I, I don't want to overstate the downsides to uh, businesses like Woodsford. Um, the industry in which we operate is now a relatively mature industry. Uh, our business has a 10-year track record of success. Um, we have the highest standards of corporate governance. Uh, we have publicly filed and audited financial statements, and we are already regulated by the Association of Litigation Funding. Um, so whatever additional uh, burden comes to us, we are well-equipped to meet it. Um, but it remains the case that I think it's a burden that is unnecessary. And Matt? Um, well, I mean, we already, um, as I've said before, are listed. We um, we adhere to the listing rules. Um, if landscapes change, you adapt and do what's necessary. I agree entirely that you know, any new rules or landscape that is brought in where there is confusion is not ideal. Um, and you don't want that confusion to come at the um, expense of clients litigation that can't get funded because of this but the reality is that will iron itself out at some point and people will move on um so I, i'm not worried by it i as i said i welcome greater transparency in the market generally um and i don't you know i can see why people 
um, say there will be downfalls and why it will be more of a burden. Um, the reality is there are plenty of businesses that are regulated that just do what's necessary. So I think as long as the um, criteria, um, the rules are clear, if it comes in, then so be it and people get on with it. Um, if it doesn't, then it's business as usual. So I'm, I'm quite relaxed from that point of view. But as I said, we already adhere to rules and uh, relevant regulations. So you know we're, we're well used to that. Thank you both. So I think we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, perhaps just to, to neatly wrap this up, obviously looking to the positive, uh, we're all about giving access to justice, funding litigation. So perhaps Matt, just ask you for a single takeaway, a best piece of advice to a party, a solicitor or a client that will sort of curry favour with you and your colleagues. Um, I think the, the one thing I'd say to people at the moment is... Um, try and think a bit differently about litigation finance and think about what the market could do and can do as opposed to what it's done in the past. Um, I think putting the client not first, that's not fair because lawyers always put the client first, but it's just thinking in a commercial way as opposed to being reactive about the cases and the litigations coming in. Um, I think the market is changing and the cash flow position is such that funding is going to be a hugely beneficial um, uh, subject for clients. But more importantly, the the cash flow concerns and constraints of businesses in the current scenario mean that opening your mind to a slightly different way of thinking may not only solve the problem for your corporate clients, but more importantly, from a legal point of view and from a business point of view, will allow the litigation to be funded and for the client and for the lawyers rather to get the work that they want in and indeed more work. So litigation funding is one of those things which is mutually beneficial when it's done well for the lawyers, for the funders and for the clients. Um, And I don't think enough people realise that and just think we're here to make um, money on very um, distressed positions. And I think that's the one takeaway I'd, I'd ask people to think about is this doesn't have to be about pure distress scenarios. It's it's a cost of capital discussion and it's a corporate finance discussion. So I think that's probably my my last point on that. And Stephen, the, the last word to you. Sure. Well, we have significant capital available and we want to fund good cases. So the advice to lawyers and their clients is the easier you make it for us to fund good cases, the easier it'll be for you to get access to our significant capital. And that means don't bring us the bad cases. It will just waste your time and waste our time. Uh, But the good cases that you bring to us, present them well, uh, and there will be a ready financial solution for you. Well, that just remains for me to thank you both very much for taking the time to answer the questions I've been throwing at you and to give your very useful insights into the current industry, but also some very sort of current developments on the side of regulation. So thank you very much, uh, Matthew and Stephen, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks both. Well, it just remains for me to thank you all for listening and I look forward to you hearing us again when we drop our next episode. In the meantime, please feel free to send us an email, podcasts at brownrudnick.com and also make sure to check us out at all your favourite podcast places and subscribe for new episodes. Goodbye for now.